Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know how sometimes you hit play on a podcast episode because you're kind of interested in the guest or the topic, but don't know what to expect, but then you listen and you're like, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. This is that episode. My name is Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, a show where with every conversation, we try to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. You can learn more about who we are and what we do at mcie.org. For this episode, I speak with Michael Giangreco, who is a university distinguished professor emeritus of special education in the Department of Education at the University of Vermont, and is also affiliated with UVM Center on Disability and Community Inclusion. Michael and I discuss why so many school systems rely too much on paraprofessionals when implementing inclusive education. We talk about why he cautions parents about advocating for that one-to-one for their child. And stick around till the end when Michael shares what inspired using cartoons as a communication tool. I've seriously been so excited to share this interview with you. Dr. Gian Greco has authored over 200 professional publications on a variety of special education topics. and presented extensively both across the United States and internationally. And he has great stories. Thank you so much for listening. And now, my interview with Michael Giangreco. Michael Giangreco, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Great to be here. Right before we got on to recording, you said it's been a long time since we've talked. So I don't know exactly when, but I believe it was a phone call. Um, and I always tell this story, although I don't, I don't typically drop your name. We had a discussion, and I'm not exactly sure why we had a discussion. I just remember that we had one. 
I remember you telling me, um, you know, Tim, at some point you're going to have to decide. (laughs) You're going to have to decide like what is next for you. And I don't think staying in the school system is it. Is what I remember. Now, is that what you remember? Or is, do you have a different kind of recollection? (laughs) You're taxing my old brain in terms of my memory. (laughs) I think I think that uh, what I recall is um, you were still working in some separate programs at the time. Yes. What I remember is not that I um, said that you had to think about whether you're going to work in schools, but whether you're going to work uh, in separate segregated programs or inclusive programs. Yes. Uh, because I knew that you were really committed to the concept of inclusion and the practices of inclusion. And that, I think that was more of it, not whether you would continue to work in schools. (laughs) Well, you know, that's an interesting nuance because I think probably from my perspective, there are no inclusive schools where I live. Right. So I think it was more like the realization that, wow, if I want to keep doing what I'm doing and if I really want to, I'm going to have to move which you know what is wasn't an option at, at least at that point and certainly not now but um I'm going to have to look for something else so Michael I I appreciate you having that conversation with me and I really well, you, I, honestly I don't remember so why I think one of the things that you make me think of is when you say that there aren't any inclusive schools where where you were or are that um I don't know if you've noticed this but in a lot of my writing I use the term inclusion oriented schools rather than mm. inclusive schools because I have kind of a similar feeling all over the country that there are really very, very few truly inclusive schools, even those that call themselves inclusive. They're, they're really more in inclusion oriented schools. They're striving to be inclusive, hopefully, but um, many of them have not fully arrived. And you yeah. know, the experience that I have in, have had in Vermont is people want to come and visit quote inclusive schools, and I have to tell them like, yes, these are folks that are you know trying to be inclusive, uh, but you're going to see some warts, you know, you're going to see some things that aren't utopia, right? Um, and maybe we never, you know, maybe inclusion is like justice, you know, you're kind of always striving for it, and you never fully get there and uh but it's it's definitely worth keeping going yeah uh, yeah i think that's i think that's an important thing to discuss or to think about is that uh yeah inclusion isn't necessarily a destination right it's it's uh, an idea it's something that we're striving for and there certainly are like characteristics and markers of inclusive schools um and I'd rather have a school that was committed to inclusion rather than not. So there's, those are all, you know, great points. Um, but I generally agree. Like we, we're very, we're very careful. I'm very careful. And we are as MCIE, very careful at labeling schools as inclusive or not. We have, we have a very short, 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 short list. <laughs> and the, uh, the same thing is true for quote, model programs you know mm, um yeah. i'm i'm very hesitant uh to identify uh any school as kind of like their model that you should aspire to to follow 
um, most partly because context matters so much and things are different in different places with different people, different communities, different histories. Um, and, and again, sometimes it's ammunition for, uh, folks that want to maintain the status quo to say, oh yeah, that that's supposedly a model program, but look at the flaws in it. And anytime you have humans, you're going to have flaws, right? I mean, we are human, so it's never going to be perfect. It's, it's often messy, uh, but it's worth the mess. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about inclusive schools, let me tell you a story. So this was when I was, I was working in my school district. This was probably early or middle of the road in my, you know, inclusion journey. And we were actively including a student with multiple disabilities in, in general education. This was while I was a self-contained teacher. And one of the staff, I think it was, I think they were an SLP. She pulled me aside and she said, Tim, this, you know, what you're doing with so-and-so is, is great. It's, it's awesome. And I know that you want more of what you're doing for other students in the district. But if we're going to do this, we need a whole lot of paraprofessionals to be pushed in for these kids to, for it to be successful. You know, I mean, basically we, we just need a whole bunch of one-on-ones. And so at the time I was like, I don't think that's right, but I don't think I was well versed enough to say, well, here's why it's wrong. But even now, like I hear of districts just relying on paraprofessionals for this work. So what, in your opinion, are some of those detrimental effects of just relying on paraprofessionals to do the the work of inclusion? You know, I'd start by saying I, I'd add in the word inadvertent, inadvertent mm. detrimental effects. Because when people, whether it's a parent advocating for a one-to-one or a teacher or a special educator making that advocacy, or whether it's an administrator, whoever it is, I'm assuming that their intention is positive. They're trying to be supportive. And the fact that there are documented detrimental effects is an inadvertent side effect. I often think of um, the fact that adding paraprofessionals is kind of a path of least resistance. It's the easiest, simplest, most obvious thing that most people think of. And it's where a lot of the earliest um, inclusive efforts started. I mean, back in the eighties here in Vermont, um, that was one of the ways that people got their foot in the door was, um, to offer paraprofessionals. The, one of the big problems with offering the paraprofessional back then to get your foot in the door is that it, it sent the wrong messages. Um, it sent messages that, you know, um, schools, teachers, principals, you don't really have to change, you know, like regular ed doesn't have to change at all. We're just going to put this person there and they're going to be responsible. Like you're not really responsible. You're just a host. So so don't worry, you know, 
your world isn't going to change that much. And so it's, it's kind of understandable that people took that path to get in the door when the door was shut tight in the 1980s, right? Mm-hmm. But we never really moved off of that, and, and it proliferated. Um, in the early 1990s, um, some of my colleagues and I had a, a federal grant looking at related services for students with deaf blindness and multiple disabilities who were in regular classes in Vermont schools. And we were studying service coordination. But at the end of the project, we noticed that we had a lot of data on paraprofessionals because all the kids we were observing and uh, and the, uh, the staff we were interviewing and so on, all these kids had one-to-one paraprofessionals. And so we had all this data. And even though it wasn't the focus of our project, we said, you know, we really should look look at these data more closely. Um, and the qualitative data that that emanated from those interviews and observations resulted in the publication of a study that was published in Exceptional Children back in 1997, long time ago, um, which was called, I'm going to hopefully get it right, but it's going to be close. Uh, it, it was subtitled, Helping or Hovering, Effects of Instructional Proximity on Students with Disabilities. And uh, it was kind of a demarcation point in the literature because before that point, there were um, plenty of articles in the literature, some databased, some not databased, that were basically saying uh, paraprofessionals are great. We just need more of them. We just need to do a better job training them. We just need to do a better job clarifying their roles and supervising them. But they're the answer. That was the mentality. They're the answer. Go paraprofessionals. Now, I want to preface the the inadvertent detrimental effects by saying very clearly, um, as, a, as a former special education teacher myself, I have a tremendous respect for paraprofessionals and the work that they do. Um, I have a hard time imagining uh, having any success in the settings that I was in without the help of the paraprofessionals that I worked with. They were amazing. That said, uh, the model of having a particularly one-to-one paraprofessionals kind of attached at the hip in regular education settings, um, we identified a whole series. Uh, you know, I won't list them all, but I'll, I'll name some of the, the key ones. So one of the things that, that came up was that we documented were um, just kind of how this um, encouraged unnecessary dependency by the students on their paraprofessionals. Um, it tended to interfere with peer interactions because the uh, the paraprofessional was a physical and symbolic barrier to other people getting involved, particularly peers. And if you're assigned one-to-one to help a student, to support a student, what we found that was that the paraprofessionals were literally within arm's reach of, like within three feet mm-hmm. of their student all the time. And when other students um, in the classroom tried to come into the bubble, so to speak, that the paraprofessional and student were in, oftentimes they were rebuffed. And part of it was, you know, when talking to paraprofessionals, it's like, 
this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. And we noticed when paraprofessionals had to leave the situation, whether it was to, you know, run an errand, take a break, go to lunch, whatever, other people filled that space typically. But what was really interesting is what happened when they came back. If, if, a, if a student, for example, a peer filled the space and when the paraprofessional returned, the paraprofessional was like, okay, now go back and do your thing because I'm here now. I've got this under control. Then eventually people stopped filling that space um, when the paraprofessional left because they got the message like this is a separate zone for just us, you know, right. just the paraprofessional and the student with the disability. But other examples of inadvertent detrimental effects besides interfering with um, peer interactions and, and creating unnecessary dependencies is it also interfered with teacher engagement, with the teacher getting involved. And one of the things that I strongly believe and I think is um, well documented in the literature is that among the most important uh, variables and qualities of of a successful inclusive placement is the extent to which the regular education teacher takes ownership and is engaged with the student with a disability so that they're not just a host they're actually the teacher and they think of themselves as the teacher. Um, and so often, um, the presence of the paraprofessional um, interferes with that. It also decreases the availability of, of competent instruction for students because um, as hardworking and dedicated as paraprofessionals are, and you might get lucky and have a, a licensed teacher who's working as a paraprofessional, you can't count on that. And so... It's like kids without disabilities get access to highly qualified teachers and special educators and related services providers. And particularly if you have a developmental disability, um, our data here in Vermont suggests that um, if you have a one-to-one -one paraprofessional, especially, you might be getting 50, 60, 80, sometimes 100% of your instruction, including first instruction, from a paraprofessional. And that's rooted in a lot of really unhelpful um, foundations and thinking about people with disabilities. It, it's rooted in very low expectations. And I try to point out to people that this is fundamentally an equity issue in part. It's an instructional issue, but it's an equity issue for people with disabilities. And it's, you know, I always encourage people to ask the question, um, would the practice be okay if the student didn't have a disability? And you know, if if you, if you said to somebody, um, well, we've got a new, you know, uh, new program in literacy um, for our first graders and kindergartners, and um, they're not going to have access to any teachers who are actually trained in literacy instruction, we're going to hire a whole bunch of really nice, dedicated people who are willing to work for a non-livable wage, and um, and they're not really going to be supervised, and we're just going to kind of say... Here, this this kid, go to it and do some reading stuff with them. Uh, you know, people were like, "Whoa, wait a minute, that's not that's not cool, that's not okay." But somehow we've convinced people that we're doing kids and families, kids who have disabilities and their families, we're doing them a favor by assigning an untrained, unsupervised, less skilled person. Um, and again, I want to really make the point: I'm not saying that paraprofessionals. Uh, 
don't belong in the school systems. I think that they do. And I'm not saying that they don't have important roles because I, I think that they do. Um, but I think the way that we're using them and the way that we've approached this is really problematic. We've also seen uh, another example of an inadvertent detrimental effect is loss of personal control and, and sometimes gender identity. That was one of the less common ones, but I'll give you a really specific example from the research. Um, and again, this was back in the 90s, okay, when issues around gender identity weren't as predominant as they are today, okay? Hmm. But what we do know is that the vast majority of paraprofessionals are female. So you've got a, a female paraprofessional with a student um, who is male, uh, and they're in physical education class. And the teacher says to the group, okay, uh, girls, I want you to do 50, you know, jumping jacks and boys, I want you to take five laps, go. Well, the paraprofessional kind of goes with the group that she identifies with. So she goes with the girls, takes the male student with the girls, as opposed to with the boys. Um, and yeah. so, uh, you know, it's l things like that. And, and also you have, um, personal control issues where people say, well, why, why is this student so unmotivated? And it's like, they've learned that they have no control over anything that goes on in their life. It's like somebody's moving them around, doing this, taking them here, taking them there, not giving them choices. Um, so there's a lot of loss of personal control. You see these very insular relationships and oftentimes they're touted as being positive because there's a warm nurturing relationship between the paraprofessional and the student. And that absolutely happens. But when it happens to the exclusion of, of other relationships, that's a problem. So, you know, you hear the issue of, you know, should the paraprofessional continue um, with the student in subsequent grades? Right. Um, and it's like, would you, you know, sometimes schools do have multi-age and multi-grade situations that are chosen. But at some point, you know, you want kids to have experiences with different adults and be able to respond and generalize across different people. And if we said, you know, you're going to have the same teacher, you know, every grade through elementary school, like most people would be like, yeah, it's not really working for me. You know, it can also set up some unhealthy dynamics between the paraprofessional, the teacher, special educator, and family, where the 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 paraprofessional kind of functions as like the eyes for the family, and they like report back to the family, and it the loop is kind of mixed up. Um, but some of that happens because teachers and special educators don't always know what's going on because we, as the professionals, have abdicated some level of responsibility for that student. Um, and then it really shows up when the paraprofessional is absent. Like people are like, what do we do? We don't know what to do because this person does everything. So, you know, there's really a problem of, um, of being over, being overly dependent on the paraprofessionals. And fundamentally it gets at some service delivery issues where, you know, the, the use of paraprofessionals and the continued add on of paraprofessionals is because we don't have sound, inclusive service delivery models 
that account for the inclusion of the full range of kids with disabilities that that exist in our schools. I love that you said the the high regard you have for paraprofessionals because I agree. You know, when I was in the classroom, I couldn't do my job without paraprofessionals. Um, I also couldn't have done the level of inclusion that I was able to achieve without paraprofessionals, even though looking back, it really wasn't um, as inclusive as I, I would have wanted it to be. But even, even thinking about the, the students that were uh, that did access general education, um, especially in those early years, it wasn't because I facilitated that. It was because paraprofessionals facilitated that. Um, and it wasn't until later in my career that we thought we, we talked about coaching and we talked about, you know, a, um, co-teaching where I was planning lessons with the general education teacher and then the paraprofessional was supporting the goals and the lessons in that context. There are these myths about like who needs a, a one-to-one. Like for mm. some people, it's just like, you know, all kids with autism need a one-to-one. All kids with Down syndrome need a one-to-one. Um, and those are, I think, dangerous assumptions to make up front. I pulled something up that I wanted to read you, and it's a letter. It's a, it's a, it's a, a very short vignette that a parent wrote. Oh, yeah. And, no, please. This sounds great. Yeah. So many years ago, I co-authored an article with four parents. The article was called, Be Careful What You Wish For, Five Reasons to Be Concerned About the Assignment of Individual Paraprofessionals. And it was written with my colleague, Susan Yuan, and with Barb McKenzie, and Pat Cameron, and Janice Fialka. And all four of those women are parents, of, and their children each has developmental disabilities of various sorts. And one of the reasons I invited them to write this article with me is I kind of, cha- I asked them to challenge me. You know, like I, I was having these ideas, but um, I was concerned that, that they might be considered like against what parents were advocating for. Mm. Like, wait a minute, I'm a parent. I'm advocating for a one-to-one. Um, and you're saying that there's problems with one-to-one. Are, are we on the same team? Because I've always thought of myself as somebody who was kind of advocating with the parents. And um, one of the things we've, I've noticed is that there's been a shift over time. And although parents, many parents still do advocate for one-to-one paraprofessionals for their child, if you dig deep, you often find that the request is because there's a lack of trust in what the regular education system or special ed system is going to do. They're worried about whether their child's going to fall through the cracks. They're worried that the teacher's not really engaged. You know, they're worried that they're going to, there's going to be some kind of low quality um, approach, and this is a level of insurance, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's very rational reasons why parents advocate for one to ones, even if advocating for a one to one may not be the necessarily the best thing to advocate for. So, I asked these parents to challenge me, and I also asked three of them to share personal vignettes that were included in the article. This is from. Pat Cameron regarding her daughter, Beth. So she writes, 
when my daughter Beth started high school, the high school personnel insisted she have a full-time paraprofessional, presumably because she has Down syndrome. It was a battle I wasn't willing to fight, so I agreed to it, even though I felt it wasn't needed. Freshman year, this arrangement worked out reasonably well. The paraprofessional was a young woman, not much older than Beth. She was skilled at giving her room and knowing when to back off. During Beth's sophomore year, this paraprofessional was replaced by one who was on her like Velcro. She was always telling Beth what to do, insisting she leave class early, and generally making a spectacle of their interactions. It wasn't long before Beth reacted uncharacteristically. She ran away from the paraprofessional, called her names, and even left school and went home. Though Beth's communication wasn't socially desirable, her intent was clear, but no one seemed to be listening. A month or so into the year, after the second paraprofessional quit, Beth's team met to decide what would happen next. Beth said she, quote, didn't want to be bossed and, quote, didn't want an aide, end quote. Her request was honored. Beth didn't have an individual paraprofessional for the rest of high school. The problem behaviors disappeared, and with no intermediary between her and the teachers, Beth was more academically connected. It made me feel even more strongly that we need to involve students in determining their own need for supports. And um, my point there in part, and to me, that's a really powerful story, um, is that parents are now advocating for their child to have access to the highly qualified content specialist. If if you want your child to learn to read or or you know develop in math, you know you you have a choice between an unskilled paraprofessional or somebody with a math background. Like, give me the person with the math background, right? Uh, but we we're still in this place where some people think of children who have uh, children and youth with disabilities as my kids or your kids instead of our kids, right? And so, of course, part of the mentality in a in an, a truly inclusion oriented school is that we're all responsible for all the kids. We don't have your kids and my kids. They're they're our kids. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. that brings up the um, the idea, or I guess the um the discussion of what roles there should be in inclusive schools. Yeah. You mentioned general education teachers um, feeling like students with disabilities in their classrooms are actually their students and not the just the students of the special education or the responsibility of the special education teacher or the paraprofessional. Um, how have you seen those responsibilities shift in the mindsets of educators? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, they, they haven't shifted wholesale around the country. If they had, we'd be seeing a lot more success than we're seeing because we see a lot of unevenness around the country. And even within the same states and school districts, there's ebbs and flows as personnel change, as leadership changes, and so on. So I think we still have a long way to go with this. A number of years ago, I convened a group. I can't remember how many people. I'm looking at a document here. It was probably a dozen or more people, and they were all general and special education school leaders. And as a result of working with them, um, my close colleague, Jesse Suter, and I, and a local school principal, uh, Vicki Graff, longtime uh, advocate of inclusive education as, as a regular education school principal, wrote a, an appendix that is located in the book, uh, Choosing Outcomes and Accommodations for Children, Third Edition. And one of the things that we advocate in there is the idea that while so many places want to start with like what's the paraprofessional's role and you see all kinds of articles on what's the paraprofessional's role we think that that's part of the problem mm. we should never be starting with what's the paraprofessional's role if a student is in a regular class the very first place we want to start is what is the teacher's role and the way we framed it in this document um was we identified eight key roles for teachers. So not every single role that a teacher engages in, but eight key roles related to inclusive education. But it all starts with the phrasing, teachers contribute to the education of students with disabilities in inclusive schools and classrooms and demonstrate educational ownership by, and then doing these different things. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when we first did our first draft of this, the idea of teacher ownership was one of the items. And it was by vetting this document through like a dozen school leaders, they said, no, no, that is part of the base. That's part of the starting point. All of the things should be contributing to them having educational ownership. And so what we do is we start with um, the general education roles. And then there's a set of special educator roles, which mostly parallel the teacher roles. And part of it is that with the special educator roles, 
We say special educators contribute to the education of students with disabilities in inclusive classrooms by, and a lot of it is co-creating and co-managing, co-facilitating all the things with the regular educator. And it's only after you have determined what is the role of the teacher and the special educator that you're in a position to then start to say for paraprofessionals, paraprofessionals contribute to the education of students with disabilities in, in inclusive schools and classrooms and help create opportunities for classroom teachers and special educators to spend time instructing students with disabilities and collaborating with each other by doing these things. So it's not what's their role in instruction, what's their role, they shouldn't have a role in planning, I don't think. But it's like the paraprofessional's role is not so much to support the student, but to support the mm-hmm. teacher and special educator. And that's also a big mind shift. Yeah. Because what we typically do is we say, the role of the paraprofessional is to support this student. And so it's their instruction, it's their social behavior, et cetera. And what we're saying is, no, the the teacher is the is the lead person for every other kid in that classroom. They should be the lead for this person, but then we have to focus on how do we support this teacher? And that's a great point. Yeah. Would be supporting the teacher. So it's a mind shift for sure. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, Michael. I'm not sure if I've thought about it quite in that way. Yeah, I wonder if um you know some of the language I've heard around paraprofessionals is that they're teaching assistants. And I wonder if that is on purpose. Um, So I always use the word, and it's a very nuanced difference, but I think there's a difference between being a teaching assistant and a teacher assistant. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah. So to me, they are a teacher assistant. They are an assist to the teacher. And it's not necessarily with teaching. It might be with teaching or part of it may be with teaching, but part of it may be with other things. Um, I also think that it's a problematic when you assign somebody just to students with disabilities in the classroom. In the models of service delivery that we've been developing, the paraprofessionals have split funding or shared funding between general education and special education. And because they are assigned to the teacher, not to a student, then the teacher deploys them to work with whichever students you know, they need them to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a big role, uh, a big role shift. So, um, like I'm thinking about like assigning students in natural, assigning learners in natural proportions, because let's say you have a grade level and let's stick to, let's stick to middle school and you have uh, seventh grade students and you have a number of students with particular disabilities and you are kind of spreading them out across the grade level. So there's no inclusion classrooms. It's just classrooms. And then typically, you know, so you, uh, typically you have students first and then you look at roles. So you look at teachers, general education teachers, special education teachers. And so how you're putting or finding spots for paraprofessionals is really the same it's the same idea you're just saying in this role this classroom or this teacher is going to need this kind of role 
Is that and right? The teachers, well, the teacher's helping to decide how the paraprofessional is most useful to them mm-hmm. so that they can be engaged with all their learners. You know, this brings up a point that's a little bit off off the topic, but it's it's kind of a personal pet peeve of mine you, when you mentioned natural proportions, because uh, I think that's a really important concept. And as you know, co-teaching is very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and co-teaching can be great. Uh, but one of the problems that I see uh, in schools that I visit, and I've seen it repeatedly over many, many years, is that in order to justify the presence of a co-teacher, meaning a special educator co-teacher, schools routinely violate natural proportion. They put a, a disproportionately high percentage of students with disabilities and other non-standard needs, meaning kids at risk, kids who are non-English language learners, um, anybody that has any kind of issue that uh, is requires extra support, mm-hmm. they congregate in the co-taught classroom and it makes that classroom completely out of whack. And so you're going forward one step and you're going backwards three. So um, I, I would really, I really hope that people will look at this issue of natural proportion related to co-teaching in the models of service delivery that um, exemplar models of service delivery that we've been um, exploring. Given typical resources, say here in Vermont, about the best we can figure out is twenty to twenty-five percent per teacher for co-teaching. Um, we can't figure out how you do that with existing resources a hundred percent of the time without congregating kids. And it's to me, it's not worth it. It creates more problems than it's worth. Um, but it's it's definitely an issue and it has gotten extremely little attention in the literature. And no research as far as I know. Absolutely. Well, I, I you know, um I think I, I was talking with um this was this was months ago, but I was interviewing Marilyn Friend. Yeah. Uh about co teaching. And sure. she talked about how co teaching isn't even in the law. Like there's no there's nothing in the law about it. There's nothing in IDA. So when you so when um which I didn't realize until, you know, well, well, people, yeah, this is when, this is one of Carol's um, soapboxes that she gets on about, about uh, continuum of services. <laughs> if I say that around her, she <laughs> just watch. Uh, because what ends up happening when I went to IEPs is like, okay, we're going to talk about the continuum of services, which is really alternate placements, but that's okay. You know, in the IEP, it's, you know, people talk about services. And so it's like, okay, you have the general education, you know, classroom with no support. And then you have the general education classroom with additional support. And that typically means a paraprofessional. Not always. Sometimes it's a co-teacher. Sometimes it's not. Um, and then you go, you know, these, all these, like, these little check boxes and, and stuff. Um, but, uh, well, now I lost where I was going. Where uh, co-teaching in maryland oh yeah maryland maryland friend and so it's like there there's no guidance in the law about what that's supposed to look like co-teaching is really um it's been it's been kind of like however the district wants to do that and some districts don't even practice 
that. Right. They, they don't even have that as a, as an option. And so it's like, we're still fighting that fight, right? That, oh, you can have a general ed and a special education teacher working together. Like that's, that's new for some people. It's just, it's, it's well, unbelievable. Say, one of the, one of the challenges is some of the, and I, I'm not going to mention any specific names of schools, <laughs> but some, some prominent, well-known, uh, highly publicized, um, inclusive schools use models where they use, you know, where they have co-taught classes with a full-time special educator and a full-time regular educator in the same classroom. Um, as, as far as I know, that's not a sustainable model in most places. And what it does again, is it congregates highly disproportionate percentages of kids with non-standard educational needs in one setting in order to justify that. And then and it's like it's like school districts that have like this one shining star school that's their inclusive school and they send all the kids with disabilities or many of them there and then like the rest of the district might be a wasteland of uh you know segregation or or non-inclusive practice but you know that's like look at the shiny thing we have over here you know like don't look at the rest of it you know that's that's not so good um so yeah. There's um, there's a lot of work to be done for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, in the limited time that we have, I actually, you know, I want to talk about your cartoons, Michael. <laughs> okay. Because I love talking uh, about cartoons. Um, because you know we uh, use the cartoons all the time: absurdities and realities of special education. The cartoon collection that's available at the University of Vermont, uh, the digital collection. Um, and I'm just, I'm wondering, how did you get into using cartoons as, as a communication tool? Yeah. So first I appreciate you accessing that public and accessible site. Um, it became available just a couple of years ago in part because the books that had been originally published, which most recently had been distributed by Corwin, a sage company went out of print. And because I held the copyright, I was able to make them available for nonprofit and educational purposes to people for free. Before, when I was presenting in the late 80s and early 90s, I always used to use cartoons in my presentations, like if I was making a research presentation or just at a national conference or whatever. And I often used Gary Larson Farside cartoons. Yeah. And, you know, Lots of people like cartoons, you know, and they and they find them humorous and they find them insightful sometimes, depending on the type of cartoon. And the problem that I was having was that the cartoons were helpful, but they weren't like really right on point, mm -hmm. you know. And I thought, I wish there were cartoons, you know, about, um, you know, special ed or, or education. And I started looking more and I found some about education in general. Um, but what was interesting to me was that many of the cartoons that were out there made fun of kids and you know, like things that they did or made fun of their families or whatever. And my own personal experience as an educator who, you know, started in, started teaching in the 1970s uh, as a special education teacher was that 
most of the most absurd and ridiculous things that happened were perpetrated by us as professionals, you know, in the name of our profession. Um, and, and so I wanted to poke fun at us, um, at the things that we do, things that I did myself personally, you know, that I look back on and think like, how could I have ever thought that was a good idea, you know? But, uh, so I, um, I kind of got frustrated with the fact that I didn't have cartoons that were on point and I started, you know, jotting down ideas and I incubated on this for a long time, like years. And finally I just started like drawing them. I just like got a pad of paper, started drawing them and writing out the text. And the the only problem I had was I'm a terrible drawer. I can't (laughs) draw to save my life. So uh, what I ended up doing was I worked with a, a friend of mine, Kevin Ruel, who is an amazing artist and does all different kinds of art. Um, cartooning is not one of his like main things that he does, but you know, he agreed to work with me and I would sit with him and I'd show him my drawing and I'd say, you see that stick figure? They're supposed to have this expression on their face and they're, they're supposed to be doing this motion or this action stuff that I couldn't, I couldn't do myself. And then we would edit back and forth until the the cartoon matched the image that was in my mind. And um, so I, I did all the original drawings, all the original text, and then I worked with Kevin to make it look like it looks in the cartoons. And originally, they were all black and white as well. They were line drawings because the technology of the day, this is like pre-computer presentations, were overhead projections. You know, some of your audience doesn't even know what that is. But you know, we had we had these, you know, plastic uh, yes. clear yes. plastic things that you would run through a copy machine and you know color didn't work because the copiers weren't color. So we purposely made them all uh black and white line drawings. Then when things moved more digitally to you know computer presentations, we colorized everything. So now we've got color versions of everything. So, you know, the the thing is that people, most people don't read the literature. You know, I mean, if you go into a school, it's just, you know, there's way more literature than people actually read. And most people aren't reading the literature regularly, but they'll look at a book of cartoons. They'll remember the cartoons. They'll remember the idea in the cartoons. And so it's... um it's been it's been a lot of fun. We've done over 340, I think. Maybe we're over 350 now of cartoons. There are some on the site that were never published in books that mm-hmm. are new to some folks. But it was it was just a um another way to communicate with people. Like I, I always tried to um do the research and actually have a research study. And then um, we had a series, I don't know if you've seen it, it's old now, but it was called Quick Guides to Inclusion. And it was a, and it was a very kind of teacher-friendly, very short, non-researchy way to summarize the research. And then cartoons and practice materials too, like, you know, how-tos. But um, the cartoons really have resonated with a lot of people. Originally, nobody wanted to touch them, like nobody wanted to publish them because they were concerned that they were unscholarly, that they would make make the publisher seem unscholarly, that they would make me seem unscholarly. And it's like, you know, I wasn't really concerned about that. Um, 
And uh, so they finally, it, it really, it took uh, a mom and pop publisher at the time, uh, Patrol Publications out in Minnesota, Minnetonka, Minnesota, tiny, tiny little publishing house um, to say, yeah, we'll, we'll publish these. And then eventually uh, they uh, sold the distribu- distribution rights to Sage, to Corwin, um, and then they went out of print. Um, wow. But um, yeah, it was, it's been a wonderful ride. It was a labor of love and um, it was really fun uh, to do them. And, and what a, what a gift to the community. What a gift they, they, I, I, I love seeing them pop up every so often. I mean, we share them, you know, but I mean, obviously we're not the only ones that share them. So, and they're, they're wonderful. So, um, I guess the sad news about it is that, uh, the sad thing about it is a lot of these cartoons were written 19, you know, 98, 99, 2000. Here we are more than 20 years later. And they're still relevant. There's absolutely sad that they're still relevant. Yes. Yes. Um, so the, the most recent cartoon, I think, wasn't it like 2012 or 2010? Uh, yeah, yeah, there've been, I'm not sure. I can't, I'd have to go look when the, no, I did one last year actually that must have, um, the Australian, uh, uh, an Australian inclusive education um, organization asked me to take a diagram that they had and turn it into a cartoon. And that one was added to the, um, to the, to the uh, digital collection. Okay. Uh, Yes. Yes. Well, we'll make sure to, um, to link that into our show notes. Um, As we're wrapping up here, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience of educators and parents and families? Well, you know, um, you and I had uh, an exchange on email a little bit about thinking about the future Mm -hmm. and um, kind of what the future holds. I've been working on inclusive education issues since the late seventies. Um, I mean, it literally started for me when I was working in a segregated school, um, or a wing of a, it was a wing of a vocational center. And I had a segregated classroom for students who had the most severe, what were referred to at the time as severe and profound, uh, multiple disabilities. But, but I had a few, uh, very young children and there was a, there was a preschool there was a childcare vocational program in the vocational school where I was working. So it was a big vocational center and a wing of it was basically a separate special ed school. And I, I started my first uh, efforts at inclusion back then trying to get the couple of kids in my class that were age appropriate included with kids without disabilities in that childcare environment. And then in the early 80s, even, um, uh, I was working on it, again, from a segregated uh, situation, taking my kids to a local elementary school and including them in natural proportion and regular classes um, and getting in all kinds of trouble for doing that. <laughs> yeah. As a, um, 
oh, I'm blanking on the name of the of the wonderful um, congressman who passed away last year from I want to say from Georgia, who was part of uh, Martin Luther King's. Oh, John uh, Lewis. John Lewis, thank you. You know, he talked about getting in good trouble. Yes. Uh, so it was good trouble. <laughs> helping me with my memory. No problem. But uh, I, I think that one of the things that I've seen, so I've been, I've been at this a long time, and sometimes I feel like it's banging my head against the brick wall. And other times it's like, you know, once you've seen what inclusive education can do when it's done reasonably well, to me, there's no turning back. You know, um, I can't. I can't even imagine not advocating for it because it's just um, so many positive outcomes can come when it's done well. And I think the thing, one of the messages that I want to give to people is to avoid or to watch out for uh, critics who make this uh, kind of either or argument to people. The argument that they make is, um, Either the child can be included or you can have good instruction. But if you want good instruction, you know, you're not going to get it in an inclusive classroom. So um, because we need to do, you know, very systematic precision teaching kind of stuff. And so, you know, decide what you want. You know, do you want them to be included and it's for, quote, social reasons or do you want them to get good instruction? And the price of good instruction is segregation. Well. I think that is such a lame argument, and it's a paper tiger. Um, and I would also say that you can't have quality, inclusive education if the student is not academically engaged in some way. They don't have to be functioning at the same level as their classmates. They can be functioning at a different level, but they've got to be included in the same educational activities and experiences. They have to be part of the classroom community. So. I think the only way we advance is we have to strive for both. We have to strive for making sure that students' civil and personal individual rights are maintained, which is partly what the law tells us it's giving us, um, that the default starting point for all kids is the regular class and the school they would attend if not disabled. And then we need to... um, figure out how to provide the best instruction that we can to them, appropriate instruction. Uh, and we've got to do both. So, and I think we also need to really have a sense of urgency about this because so often, uh, you know, we're debating things, we're working on things and, you know, while we're doing that, kids are growing up, families are moving on. So we really need to, to uh, support each other in, in doing this. And we need to develop more inclusive models of service delivery. One of my own frustrations with our field recently is that we have so much emphasis on curriculum, instruction, behavior supports, et cetera, all important stuff. But you can have the best teachers in the world, the best curriculum, the best instructional approaches. And if you don't have a service delivery model that allows teachers and special educators to do their work, uh, it all falls apart. So. Um, you know, that's been a lot of what my colleague Jesse Souter and I have been working on over the last 10 years or so is inclusive service delivery models. So I just want to give encouragement to the folks that are out there that are kind of fighting the good fight. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's an important, 
bit of advocacy that you're engaging in, and there's a lot of work to do. It's going to be messy. Uh, as my favorite football coach, I'm I'm from Buffalo, New York, and my favorite football coach was uh, Marv Levy, and he used to say about winning something that I think is is also true about inclusive education, which is that it's simple, but it's not easy. And so, um, you know, this is not rocket science. Uh, families are the best models of how to include people. Um, and they do it beautifully uh, all the time. We have a lot to learn from how families include their um, their family members who have disabilities. Uh, but yeah, we need to we need to have that urgency and we need to keep going, even though it's going to be messy along the way. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Michael G. and Greco, for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Tim. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. If you enjoyed today's episode, here is one way that you can help our podcast grow. Right now, only for patrons, we have a special preview of Inclusion Stories, MCIE's new podcast series that will launch later this year. To get access, go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. Special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., Aaron P., and Paula W. for their support of Think Inclusive. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how MCIE can partner with you and your school or district, visit mcie.org. We are three times a month now, so look in your feed next week for more Think Inclusive. Thanks for your time and attention, and remember, inclusion always works. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.